This feels like a hey, colonoscopy let's... every time I'm on this show. Boys, let's raise a glass. We have Don Benley and oh, Mark yeah. Cameron in here the house go. today. Dangerous Unreal. crew here. Good mm. to be back. Not what you said earlier, but we'll take it. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we want to welcome you both back to the show. Two members of the inaugural uh, crew hall of shame or fame, fame. class. Uh, Don, your second book in the Jack Ryan series hit bookshelves a week before this taping. And, and congratulations are in order as it just hit Number two on the New York Times bestseller list. Absolutely. Um, with all that being said, Don, do me a favor. Give us a quick summary of Zero Hour. Well, I'm going to give you a summary, but I don't know about the quick part. Um, <laughs> Here we yeah. go. So my first assignment as a, as a brand new Apache pilot was to South Korea. And um, it was back in the late 90s. And that was obviously before September 11th. And back then, the Korean Peninsula was kind of the closest to combat um, you could come because obviously there's still, still to this day, no peace treaty between the two nations. There's an armistice and uh, North Korea every now and then would fire up South Korea and would shell them or they'd go back and forth and yep. shoot each other's boats up. And, and in fact, just before I got to um, Korea, there was, they call them midget subs, these little tiny subs that are used to ferry um, North Korean special operations folks um, into South Korea, ran aground, and uh, people were chasing the North Korean commandos across South Korea to try and find them. And so um, it really impacted me as a young platoon leader. It was a great place to learn your job uh, because the Apaches have a very unique mission set there in Korea. And so I knew I wanted to set a book there. And so when um, Tom Colgan asked me what I wanted to do, I was like, you know, I'd love to do kind of a Korea. And he's like, how in the world are you going to come up with a reason for Jack Ryan Jr. to be in Korea? And I'm like, just watch, just watch Tom Colgan. The so, girl. It's always a girl. It's always a girl. Always, <laughs> always a girl. Looking always, for a I kiss. Mean, always but a girl. that's true in life, isn't it? Absolutely. It's always about a girl. So yep. the, uh, yes. so kind of the, the premise being that they're, that the uh, leader of North Korea is incapacitated and, that his incapacitation triggers a dead man switch that kicks off um, the, the run up to a second um, Korean war. And Jack Ryan Jr. just happens to be there as it all goes down. So it was a, I mean, it was a, a super fun book to write because I wanted to write a, a bigger kind of military thriller book. And so you get to see what a conventional, what a buildup in the opening stages of a conventional war would uh, look like in South Korea. And and this is the last thing, and I'll and I'll and I'll stop this. Is I got to put a ton of Easter eggs in there, and that I took as many guys um, who I used to fly with, who were oh instrumental you. in shaping yeah. me as a as a young platoon leader, and I put them all as characters. And then I took my friends 
who were special operations. And if they were like Brandon Cates was actually an army ranger. So I made him a seal and Jad was a seal. And so I made him a green beret. And so that's what you get to do when you're the author. That is awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> North Korean subs running under on a uh, ground. What other book might that have been in 2019? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> but by the way, you, so your background on that dude, that it totally makes sense now. Every part of this book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It was, I mean, you, when you're in um, Korea over and I, and I did almost two years there. Cause what happens is you show up as a platoon leader I mean, it's only a year tour and they immediately stick you into staff and they say, hey, do you want to be a platoon leader? And you're like, of course I do. And they're like, good, just sign on this line and extend <laughs> another year. And so over the, the course of the year that you're in Korea, you fight um, the Korean War at least once, sometimes twice. And so two or three times, maybe more than that, I got to see the entire workup of what it would look like and what our go to war stuff would be like. And so it was really fun to kind of play that out in a novel wow that's awesome yikes well don every now and then we have an author on the show tell us that a specific book or specific scene is the one that they've been waiting to write when they first decide to become a writer there's a scene in zero hour and i will not give away anything about it other than to say it's one of the most visceral scenes featuring an apache mm. helicopter i've ever mm. read i mean there's mm. several apache uh, things in here but um First, is this one of those scenes you've been waiting to write? And secondly, who did you consult for this? Because you seem to nail the details. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> me, definitely me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it's funny. I actually wrote that sequence originally um, for my previous Matt Drake book, um, Hostile Intent, because I at one point I had a completely different idea where that was going to go. And I knew I wanted to have... Um, one of the things that impacted me as a young Clancy reader, and I've told this story before, is, you know, part of the opening scenes are, are, are of um, Red Storm Rising, where that F-14 is doing strafing runs on the Russian tanker. And Tom Clancy just really puts you in the cockpit. And I thought that mission set. So in in Korea, the Apaches have this very um, unique mission set. On one hand, they go, they fly over water during the opening stages of the war. And, and interdict um, these fast boats that yep. have South Korean commandos. And then the second part is they do this thing that's called a deep attack. And so they actually fly over what's called the flot or the forward line of troops and go interdict the, the second echelon forces that are coming down and kill them. And so you spend a lot of time, I was the scout platoon leader, memorizing what order of marches would look like, what the formation would be, because you might find yourself in the position where you bypass the initial targets because those aren't the second echelon forces that you're hunting and trying to go kill and so there's this whole aspect of that and i thought man that would be a really great story and then i also wanted to show you know give the apache kind of the spotlight and so um the guy that's in there uh, mike reese who's the platoon leader um character was actually a warrant officer that i flew with and when he got out of the army. He was um, a CW5, Chief Warrant Officer 5, and the head warrant officer for the entire army. And so he and I shot a gunnery together. He was one of my instructor pilots. And so when this was coming down, I said, hey, Mike, I want to uh, I want to name a character after you and make him a lieutenant. And it got really quiet. Like I thought uh -huh. he was going to be excited about it. And he said, 
is it a squared away lieutenant? And I was like, is there any other kind? And he said, in my experience, there is. And I'm like, he's a squared away lieutenant. But he, uh, Mike now is actually out at the um, Boeing plant in Mesa where the Apache is made. And so when I was asking him questions, he's like, hey, why don't you just come out here and I'll throw you in the simulator and we can, you know, do some of this stuff in real time. And so the last time I flew an Apache was in 2005 in Afghanistan. And so I'm getting ready to go in and jump in the simulator. And my wife is like, you going to be all right with this? And I'm like, it's like riding a freaking bike. Of course I'm going to be all right. And then I got in the front seat and I can't even figure out what buttons go where. And I'm shooting the laser when I want to shoot the gun and my little line of sights going everywhere. And I'm like, so it's not exactly like riding a bike, but it's, it's pretty close. So those movies when some guys like, oh, I used to fly a helicopter, just jumps in this high tech helicopter and saves the day. That's all bullshit, right? No, 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 I could totally do that. It was just the gunnery part. Was, 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 something wrong with a simulator. Two different gotcha. things. Totally no, he can't programming fly. the screwed up yeah <laughs> okay mark in your most recent jack ryan entry chain of command you had a pretty damn big crisis um, you had the first lady kidnapped oh, uh, and my question as i read these i like and this isn't the first time i've had this question with with you in these books uh it, but with all that ryan has faced from you know uh hunt for october on does it get tougher each time to sort of raise the stakes and to, yeah. you know, give him something that actually makes him sweat? Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, in, in fact, it, it, it's, it's really a mind bending exercise here because since I turned in um, chain of command, I've finished another Arliss like after cold snap and part of a Jericho novella, and now I'm deep in the middle of the next Tom Clancy, which is set during the Cold War. So Jack oh. Ryan's 35 years old, and oh, Clark's fun. 38 or 39. Oh, I love that. And, Dude, that's um, awesome. So I, I'm trying to remember what happened in Chain of Command. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That well, the first really lady got kidnapped. It's a <laughs> little, no, little that, detail. You, you know, that's something that's, that's hard in every... Um, series i think to try to up the last one to try to make it so that the reader the reader's more excited to read your new one than they were the last one and and that's uh especially when you're when your main character stuck behind the resolute desk that's a that's a tough thing right. that's why right. i asked for the well, that's why i asked for permission to do a, a, a retro this time so he was he was temporarily stepped that. away from that resolute desk right well that that that'll excite. I think that'll excite uh, Jack Ryan fans for sure. Because uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to go back and and uh, kind of explore what life was like when I started law enforcement. I started in 1984. This one set in 1985. So in the timeline of the the Clancy continuum, this one would be between. So not the order of the books, but the order of things happening. It was Patriot Games, Hunt for Red October, and then Cardinal of the Kremlin, as far as the Jack Ryan yeah. mm -hmm. stuff goes on. And so this one happens in between um, the Hunt for Red October and, and Cardinal of the Kremlin. So the Foley's are still in Moscow. Uh, Ryan's still in, um, and his wife are still in London. And uh, in the beginning of Cardinal of Kremlin, 
Cardinal of the Kremlin, Ryan is back in, is, is called back or has come back to work for Greer as a special assistant to uh, the deputy director for, of uh, intelligence for CIA. So um, this allows me, there's this vacant spot that Clancy never wrote about that allows me to sort of the further adventures of Jack Ryan, if you will. But um, that that's a good question for, for uh, Chain of Command. People that read my books now, this is a good comparison to have Don on here because Don is an accomplished warfighter. He's got military jargon out the wazoo. He, he knows the military. I have a son in the military, but I was never in the military. I've been a longtime Clancy fan. The Hunt for Red October came out when I was in the police academy. Uh, I was 21 years old. Mm. So, so um, or I've had to really work hard to incorporate the, the military mm-hmm. component in these books. And so consequently, when you read back over from, from uh, the first one I wrote, Power and Empire On, there's a lot of espionage, a lot of the, the stuff that, that went on in uh, Without Remorse, the stuff that went on in um, Cardinal the Kremlin, that espionage aspect Although there is military, there has to be. It's a Clancy book. Um, this particular one, which still does not have a title, uh, Tom and I are going back and forth. Tom uh, Colgan and I are going back and forth on it. But um, it is very heavy on espionage. And the cool thing is, is that I'm able to talk to my CIA friends um, about stuff that happened in the Cold War, and they're able to just, you know. Yeah, it's cool stuff that we don't all know about but it's not nice. classified anymore so this has to do with uh, of stealth and 117s and um <sighs> things like that so it's it's a, it's a really fun book to write and i'm able to go back and look at ryan and what he was like as an analyst before he was a boss before he moved up yeah. the chain of command, and right. um, it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. Hmm. Well, like that. as That's you perfect. as you as you put the finishing details on, just know that Mike and Don and I can help you with any music questions you have about 1985. <laughs> We're here for you. Yeah, yeah. When you were in junior high, that, that's good. That's good. Don't ask me. You probably wore parachute pants. And... Chris was in utero. I was a freshman in 1985, so I know all the music from that era. But hey, yeah. uh, Mark, so so if you're going back, you know. It's not a flashback, but if you're going back in time, did you have to reread the earlier Tom Clancy books to get yourself more familiar with what was going on in his world at that time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I do that pretty much every time anyway, because I want to, um, I mean, I'm constantly reading a Clancy book. I have one open, and then I have a, my wife found this really cool book. I didn't get the, we've already talked about this before, but Don got the cool cheap book from Mark Graney. Um, but my wife found me this book here that's a compendium of of Tom Clancy facts. Ah, really? No and it's it, it only goes up to I think Dead of Honor, maybe not even that far. Um, but it but it gives me you know kind of a little thumbnail without you know a little more in detail than Wikipedia. So I'm able to get the timelines right and who right. was this old here. And yeah. I will tell you that, that Jack Ryan Jr. is like a five-year-old little 
<laughs> punk that's already got a girlfriend and his wife's <laughs> you know because of that so he he ain't changed all that much it was always about the girl always about the girl yeah and he wanted to be a fighter pilot i'm sure all right so um let's go to zero hour for a second so it, it's a what if scenario and you mentioned this down already it's kind of a what if scenario uh, with the north Korean dictator's demise and what what happens mm -hmm. after the fact or what could happen after the fact. And so there's a deep concern amongst the reading population that you kind of hit the nail on the head with the Russia invading Ukraine and the Matt Drape book. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of wondering where this information comes from and how <laughs> much should we be worried about this time? Be afraid. Be very <laughs> afraid. Um, you know, North Korea is really interesting uh, for a number of reasons, but um, chief of them being they're they're the the one surviving nation I think that's still built on the Stalinist idea of um, what communism is and how it works, with the exception that even Stalin, though he was a dictator, I would say constrained might be too too strong of a a word, but he still had around him an apparatus of a functioning government government right and right. so you know when when he died there was somebody there to pick up the pieces to do it so north korea is that weird mix where you know it's it's stalinism from a government standpoint but also it's a monarchy, monarchy in that yeah. it gets passed down from generation to generation right and so the thing about being a dictator is very rarely does it happen that there's a peaceful transfer of power, right. right? You know, Stalin obviously died in office, but if you look at any of the other, as you know, I was in high school when the Berlin wall came down and you watched those um, former Soviet satellite company or countries as their governments crumbled, it didn't go really well for most of the dictators. And even like modern day, now you get um, how I, I, I don't think Gaddafi figured the way that he was going to go out was the way he ended up yeah. going out. Right. <laughs> and so that's always something as a, as a dictator, it's always in the forefront of your mind that you came to power violently and you will probably leave power violently. And so you're, you're trying to hedge and figure out how do I, how do I guard against that? And so even though in, in, in North Korea, where, it's a dynasty of sorts. Um, there's a healthy amount of, of terror among both the family members and their immediate circle, because that's what Stalin did really well, too. And Saddam Hussein and the rest is whenever the inner circle got to be too powerful, they were purged and, right. and usually violently. And so you see that in in um, North Korea. And we've actually had some scares in real life where the leader of North Korea would, um, he'd be out of the limelight for a while. And you think, what does this mean? Is he hurt? Is there some kind of power struggle going on? What? And so I just took that and, and kind of tweaked it and then tied it with a real life event that I just found fascinating. There was uh, a uh, Russian cruise missile that I think the NATO um, code word for it was Skyfall, which was actually also a James Bond movie. Yeah. And, and, and we found out about this missile because the, um, so in typical Russian fashion, it's actually a nuclear-powered cruise missile where air comes in, gets superheated in the reactor, and then radioactive air gets spewed out the back oh. of this missile so that it can get – and what it gives it is basically unlimited range. And so a cruise missile is very, very hard um, to shoot down because they can fly nap of the earth and very close – 
but they also have to, they're range limited. And so you can kind of figure which are the ways that they're going to come in. This one could literally just loiter all over the Atlantic and, and come in uh, whichever direction you want. And so the Russians, when they tested it, the way that we found out things went wrong is there was an explosion that was so large, it registered on the Richter scale that we thought it was a, a, a earthquake. And it was actually this cruise nuclear cruise missile goes into the ocean and the Russians are trying to recover it. And as they recover it, something goes horribly wrong. The reactor goes super critical. It blows up, kills a bunch of their scientists, spreads radiation everywhere. And, and it kind of ends up being a mini Chernobyl. And I thought that is too good not to use. And no so way. I kind of tied <laughs> that, that in and that's what uh, precipitated the, the power struggle or the power vacuum that's in zero hour. Wow. Uh, well, so so you got Jack Ryan, Jack Ryan Jr., Mr. C, Dean Chavez. These characters are some of the biggest, if not the biggest, in the Thriller-verse. They're fully formed. They have complete backstories. And to some readers, they almost feel like real humans. As the current authors of these characters, do you feel confined by this? That readers have a certain expectation of how these characters are going to talk, act, and think, and that you can't stray too far from that? Mark, you want to take a shot at that? Yeah, I mean, there there is some there are some borders there that we have to we have to be careful of, I think. But Clancy, you know, Don and I have talked about this a lot. Clancy had a different writing style um, because we had a different reading style back in the eighties and nineties and even the early two thousands. And so the way I believe we need to write this these are, are to um, make the reader feel the way that we felt when we were reading a Clancy, which means mm -hmm. we have to write them a little differently because we consume differently. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, video games and the internet and, you know, speedy, you know, whatever we want is at our fingertips yeah. instead of the, so we, we're really not, our brains are not equipped right, anymore to really, delve into these long like don described i was at the poison pen event he was at and he described the neutron going through all the wiring and um what was that some of all fears yeah um, some of all fears yep. yeah so i write those a little differently and i write the characters i want to write the same character but i think there is a freedom in writing them new ways like for instance in the book that I'm writing now, I'm writing the same um, John Clark that Clancy wrote in the later books. I'm writing that same character, but also I have to be very cognizant of the the, the John Clark that Mark Graney wrote because yeah, he right. he turned him. You know, as time went by. Granny had him when he was becoming a grandfather and all of that. And so I try to say, okay, here's this situation. This is what, like I think any writer does with any character. Here's a situation. What are they going to do? What is this character going to do that's um, real to them and mm. honest to them in that situation? And with Clark, for instance, he goes berserk when it happens to be a wounded young girl when it went right. because of Pam Madden and his mm -hmm. background with her and without remorse. And, you know, that was a, kind of the epitome of berserk and, uh, you know, that's John wick before there was a John. Yeah. Wick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and so 
I usually try to give him some, in fact, one of my first, it wasn't an editorial comment, it was a comment from somebody, a lawyer or somebody in the business um, that said, my gosh, you've made Clark such a violent man. And I thought, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't do that. This is the man he is. I just have to, I think, and Don has to do the same thing with the characters. We have to put them in situations that allow us to showcase yeah. those characters. There, there's such, there's such um, opportunity. I, I look at it that way. There's so much opportunity with these characters to explore that Clancy, he had, I'm sure he had another dozen books in him. Mm. He just hadn't gotten around to him. And that's our, our, uh, my particular joy and our honor to be able to, to write these mm. that, that lawyer apparently didn't see the pressurization tank or didn't read the pressurization <laughs> tank scene in uh without yeah. remorse for god's exactly sake. <laughs> exactly i always point out the the paragraph where he where clark is covered with alcohol that he's sloshed on himself and a old ready poncho and he's hanging out and he stabs the drug dealer in the belly with a k-bar that he right. spends a paragraph or two describing and he uh <laughs> stabs the drug dealer and this guy is not related to the pam madden death or anything and right. he uh he stabs him and the drug dealer goes why are you doing that to me i don't know you and clark goes practice <laughs> and i thought that's that's, that's the a, that that's is the a mean about. Yeah. mother effer uh yeah. you know speaking to, speaking to john clark don when you you have several chapters uh mm -hmm. in in zero hour with him in it uh so when you write when you write him, when you're writing a dialogue, dialogue with him, do you first pause and go, damn, I can't believe I'm writing John Clark? Or do, or do you pause and go, I hope I don't F this up? <laughs> a little of both for sure. And I think, um, I think Mark's point about um, Mark Graney's John Clark is different than Tom Clancy's is different than Mark Cameron's John Clark is true. But I think for... Mark and I work really well together because I do whatever he says. But the in truth, I think one of the things that have made the books easier from my perspective is we did kind of divide up the characters from the standpoint of who has primacy over which characters. Because you, on one hand, you know, one of, one of my favorite writers is um, Daniel Silva and his Gabriel Alon character is a painting restorer, and he always goes yep. to great lengths to say that when you restore the painting, what you want is is the the audience or the people that viewed a painting to never be able to see the painting restore in those strokes, that they only see the master, that you you mimic that. And so on one hand, that's true. I think on the other hand, though, as Mark was kind of alluding to, is that you have to, as a writer, find something of interest um, in the series that that hasn't been kicked around before to say, hey, I'm going to focus on this because this is how I'm going to broaden the series or this is how I'm going to contribute something is rather than retelling or rehashing whatever's done, I want to to um, kind of explore new territory or, 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 toy, or till new soil, for lack of a better term. Having said that, I know, so John Clark is um, is a prime character across the series, but it's specifically for Mark's um, books. And so I've always, what I, what I tried to do the, the way, the way I kind of pitched to Tom Colgan when I took over is there were, 
when the Avengers movies or when Marvel movies first came out, the first one was Iron Man. And so you got that deep dive into Robert Downey Jr.'s um, psyche. And it was such a great movie. And then when the Avengers come on, you get only a little bit of Robert Downey Jr. Because there's so many other characters mm-hmm. and they kind of overshadow his time. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, I want to do the Iron Man version of Jack Ryan Jr. and really focus on him. And what that'll mean a lot of times is that it's him to the exclusion of some of the other characters. And so there are some um, that I know have to be in each one, like Clark has to be in each one. But what I try and do is look at how Mark writes Clark and Mark, it usually works out for us that one of us gets the other's book when we're about halfway through our book. And so I always get Mark's and read it and figure out, you know, what is he doing with Clark? Where is he now? And try and mimic that as best as I can. Cause I look at that, like, that's not my character. That's Mark's character because it's so integral to the series he writes. And so when I do Clark, what I try and do very much is just be that painter. That's not leaving any brush strokes that it's just Mark's Mark's character. And I'm, and I'm trying to just carry that. And where I feel like I can exert more of my personality or explore things and stuff is with Jack Ryan Jr. And Mark's been really good to to leave him alone as much as he can too, to kind of give us that space creatively to say, here's your sandbox, here's my sandbox, because it's it's really this is really hard anyway. And I could see how um, writers who don't get along or something, it, it could be a train wreck when you have oh, gotcha. two people yeah, sure. who are okay. writing a series together. And even though I think we get along pretty well, I would have it would give me heart palpitations if if Mark was writing this extensive Jack Ryan Jr. you know scene in his book that I had to figure out how it goes into mine or vice versa. And so oh gosh, I suck. think we we do a pretty good job of deconflicting oh, yeah. that when when he doesn't give me a girlfriend with one arm and, and just let me know at the end of my <laughs> yeah. like hypothetically speaking, if that ever happened. Yeah, that was that was um, one of those things. It was a platonic, platonic relationship. Because in my defense, I would rather leave you, Jack Ryan Jr., completely. But when Mike and I were writing, we had this sort of riff back and forth where he would give him a new girlfriend and I would not kill her off, but started with a new one. We were kind of like jousting with each other before you took, you hadn't written one yet. And I'm like, I know what I'll do. I'll blow her arm off. (laughs) Um, But I was already, even in that book, I I was already weaning him down. In fact, Tom Cogan called me on the phone. He said, Oh my gosh, Jack Jr. is literally like in the backseat of the van through 99% of this book. And I, I said, exactly. That's the way as it really he should be, should be exactly <laughs> because, and that, that's a really good example. You said about the, the brush strokes because readers that are familiar with the rogue and scallywag that Jack Ryan Jr. is, are going to see that in, in the, you know, as I mentioned him, in fact, in chain of command, um, he's kind of, you know, he kind of taken to task by one of his previous girlfriends in Japan. Um, so I'm able to leave him to to Don, who does a very capable job with him and makes him heroic, where with me, he's a part of an ensemble and usually mm-hmm. less of the part. In regards to Clark, though, I, I get a lot of emails, and I think you guys have even asked me about his age. It's so fun writing him now because he's, you know, 40 years old or around there. <laughs> but um, yeah. 
I get a lot of comments about his age. I'm able to write him because I'm, uh, you know, a man of a certain age. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm able to write him with the, the tactical ideas of, of somebody that's approaching tactical life. For instance, when Mark had him, he was writing him shooting a SIG P220. That's a great gun. I've shot one many, many times. I know the Secret Service carried SIGs for a long time. Maybe they still do. I don't know. Uh, Glocks um, now. Yeah. Okay. Everybody's going to Glocks, um, including me. But uh, I gave Clark back his 1911 because <clears throat> after, I don't want to spoil alert for anybody that hasn't read the granny books, and I can't remember which one it is, but Clark gets the snot beat out of his hand by a Russian. Yeah. Uh, ball peen hammer and i was a horseshoer so i mean you guys saw me when i first started when i'm thinking writing i'm i'm working on my hands <clears throat> my hands are torn to pieces from holding horses and three pound hammers and mm. working forges and all that so i can imagine what it's like to be hammered in the hand yeah. <laughs> um, and if i was going to be tactical and be john clark in the tiny nth degree that i could be um I'd use a 1911 single action because I, I know that that's easier on my, my trigger finger. And that's what he, he had to work on. So, but what I wanted to say, I don't know why I got off on that tangent, but what I want to say is through all the, probably because I'm a man of a certain age, right? Uh, <laughs> the, um, all these emails I get about, well, he's too old. You better retire him. I wish those people would go back and read a book called first in by a, friend of mine named Gary Schroen. Uh, he was a CIA officer uh, who went in, uh, led Operation Jawbreaker oh, into man. Afghanistan. If you've seen the movie uh, 12 Strong, yeah, Gary Schroen was 57 years old. The, the Taylor Sheridan character, who's the guy with a backwards hat that's got the sack full of money. Yeah. Gary, when he was watching that, he told me, he looked at that and said, I think that's supposed to be me. So he was the CIA <laughs> officer who was about to retire that they sent in before any military people. He and his team were the first American boots on the ground because he had worked um, providing Stinger missiles during that when the Soviets yeah. were in Afghanistan. <laughs> and he knew Dostum. He knew, he knew the Northern Alliance people. So it was obvious that he would be the guy to send in at 57 the time then many you're, people are you're, retiring you're checking and by out the way, yeah. exactly he, he was literally in the transition process that the agency has to to go the first in is a, a phenomenal book and it tells a story much better better than i can but what's interesting is gary was not the oldest guy on the team right and so oh, yeah. there, there was an older dude that i can't remember his name offhand i should have it tattooed on my arm we he had said, somebody talk about that uh yeah we got it that wrote the book about the first in right he's like yeah, 70 so, years there's a guy in his 70s that's still yeah so well gary and he's, he he wrote first in but this guy that was with him was in his was 70 about 70 68 69 70 and he they didn't want him to go because he was too old and he pretty much camped out on the on the yard at, at, you know, by the parking lot at Langley. So that the director could look down and see him and, and until they said, all right, you go, you can go, you know, I'm frozen. Yeah, you are frozen. That's crazy. That's okay. <laughs> a man of a certain of age. Yeah, I'm frozen. <laughs> no, no, he's unfrozen. Yeah. Mandatory <laughs> retirement 57, but, uh, 
I guess not. I, I could feel those hills if I was humping. I think it's sixty with the agency, but but mm. still. Jeez. So no so what I'm saying is there are people like Clark. In fact, in the book I'm working on now, Clark at forty meets another um, former OSS operative from World War II. That's sort of the the precursor to old Clark. So it's kind of fun. Wow, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Awesome. Well. Each of you balances your work in the Tom Clancy universe with your own original series, um, whether it's Arliss for you, Mark, or Matt Drake for you, Don. Those series focus largely, not explicitly, but largely on the protagonist's point of view. In the Jack Ryan and Jack Ryan Jr. series, you're dealing with a much larger cast of characters and a lot more moving parts. Can you discuss the differences, if there are any, in your approach between your own novels and a Jack Ryan, Jack Ryan Jr. novels. And we'll start with you this time, Don. Um, yeah. So, so part of it is that um, the, the, the Clancy series is so well fleshed out that all of these characters exist. Right. And so the, so, so I, I say that to say when I was writing, you know, my first um, book without sanction, very much um, focused on the protagonist, Matt Drake, and two or three other people. And part of that was because um, I wanted the story to be a story of redemption from Matt's perspective. And part of that is because the world didn't exist beyond those three or four characters. And so I think one of the things that Tom Colgan is really, really good at, and he kind of does this backhandedly by singing Mark Graney's praises, is is saying hey, you as a writer, um, if you want to be better, you can never just phone it in. And what he means by that is you you have to push yourself every time you write a book. You have to try something different. You have to expand it. You have to, you know, in Mark Graney's case, obviously Sierra 6, he wrote two books in two different alternate timelines and smashed them together. Mm. And so for me, um, you can kind of see my Matt and Drake books getting a little bigger every time. And in fact, Hostile Intent was the biggest from the perspective of, you know, there were, it was a um, sort of a, a military thriller and you got to see the invasion of Ukraine from multiple points of view. And so for, for me, and I don't know, I'm curious to hear what Mark says, because I'm writing those back to back and it's a very similar genre. When I did the Ukraine thing and thought, okay, now I want to do, something like that with Korea, it was very natural to have an even bigger version, right? Mm -hmm. So I had, I mm -hmm. just showed an, you know, an airborne invasion of one little city. Can I do that even bigger this time around um, in, in Korea? And that was, you know, another kind of not backhanded compliment, but I was talking with Tom about something in one of the climaxes and he's like, that's just what you do. You write big climaxes. And, and part of me was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I write big climaxes. And then the other 99% of me looked at the book I was working on. I was like, does this have a big climax? Is this, <laughs> if this is what I do, where is it in this book? Cause I can't find it. So I think, I think you're, um, I, I feel with my Matt books, I'm trying to broaden them. With my Clancy books, some ways I'm trying to narrow them because I'm trying to do, I'm trying to make it more about Jack Ryan, even though Jack Ryan Jr., even though I have all these other, you know, characters that are used to to tell the story. But at the same time, as the story gets bigger, I used to laugh. I'm like, why in the world do they include all these 
you know, the, the, the table of contents in the Clancy book with all these characters, like why in the world do you need that? And then when you write a Clancy book and you see how big it is, you're like, I can't even remember who this character, there's one interviewer, Fran Lewis, who goes into such depth and she will, when I talk to her, she takes me character by character. What about this person? And oh I was like 45 minutes into the interview and she said a name and I didn't even know who it was. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like paging through the book as fast as I can. <laughs> so I think some of that's um, a function of the universe that you inherit one, mm. the Clancy universe that's already fully formed and very mature. And then my Matt Drake universe, which is still in the world building phase. And I'm still kind of figuring that out. But I don't know. What do you think about that, Mark? Um, I think I agree. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I think that I think I wish that I wouldn't have frozen in such a goofy state there. It's just um, nighttime. Okay, good. Just darkness there. That's it. Um, no, I feel like what you said about the cast, the cast of characters is very true. I, I make the cast of characters as I'm writing mm -hmm. because I have to refer back and forth to it over and over again. Part of it because it's all um, so many of the characters are foreign names, whether you're writing about mm -hmm. China or Russia or right. in this case, Russia and Germany. Um, so I um, and in addition to that, you have to make the names because readers read. They don't necessarily say the names out loud, so you can't name somebody um, Chuck and Charles and Chauncey, and it's too mm -hmm. it's too close together. Yeah. So you yep. have to play with those names and that sort of thing. But um, no, I when I'm writing the the difference in the two three series that I write. When I'm writing the Arliss Cutter books, that's research that I've done for the last 30 years. And so yeah. I'm more like Don writing about, you know, helicopters and, and uh, FBI work and things like that. So when I'm writing about the outdoors, I'll, I'll you know, go to Utkiagvik, which is formerly Barrow, and, and hang out for a little while to sort of get the the feel of it and the smell of it again but yeah. i already know what i want to write there where with the clancy's i've got to be on the phone with a f-117 pilot or or be talking to my cia buddies or or really learning things and it consequently it takes more time to to write a clancy for me because uh, oh no what talk about cliffhanger <laughs> because because, because Don's such a good writer, and I'm intimidated by him. That's because say. why? <laughs> we must know. Because because I uh, I spend a lot of time in research. I might spend a day reading about stuff that won't even go in the book, or it'll be two yeah. sentences or whatever. Because like you always hear, write what you know. I think, you know, you learn stuff to write. There's no way we're going to know everything that we're going to write yeah. about. What's more important, I think, is to not write what you don't know. And so if you, mm -hmm. if I can't write about, for instance, I had Clark landing at Tempelhof when he should have been landing at Tegel Berlin because he's flying in commercial. And in 1975, they stopped landing at Tempelhof, unless oh, it was a... a 
military airplane. Now you can be sure that I would have gotten 5 million emails oh, yeah. from people that were stationed in Berlin yeah. in 1985 if I'd have had him flying on a Pan Am, you know, clipper into uh, Tempelhof in 1985. So you have to be really careful of that uh, nowadays. So I'm, I spend a lot, and that's what's so fun. That's, I, I spend a lot of time because I, I enjoyed this particular part of Clancy or any writer. If I'm going to write about um, Marine One, say, I don't write as much about the technology of the helicopter as I write about the young crew chief mm -hmm. and how he deals with the technology of the helicopter. Or when I'm writing about the Secret Service, you know, their weapons, the beast, all that kind of stuff. I want to leave that to Chris. I want to write about that agent that, you know, that Barbara Bush said, you need to go home and see your family and got him all in trouble because, you know, he was talking to the first lady and, you know, and she told the supervisor to send him home. That kind of stuff is interesting to me. And, and I would really quick, I made myself a note here because we're talking about Am I still on? Or are we? Hey, no, we're, we're good. I haven't kicked you off yet. I was afraid I, we're mesmerized. Because, um, you know, we're talking about Don being prescient and um, about us writing about things in the news. Yeah. It's important to note, I think, that Tom Clancy's universe is not the real universe. It's the right. Tom Clancy universe. Mm -hmm. So we can write about now. When, you, when you're living in the zeitgeist, you know, when you're living in the world we live in and have your thumb on the, the what's going on in the world, it's natural that we're going to say, okay, Ukraine's a big deal. And, and, and Don was particularly prescient about that. Um, at the same time, I think it's, it really is a, a bad idea, at least for me, to try to be too much like mm -hmm. the real world because, I mean, you, you want Russia to be where Russia is and Japan to be where Japan is and real events as Clancy did, you know, real events happened sort mm -hmm. of in the past, but then Clancy was able to have bombs explode. Clancy was able to kill everyone and, you know, in a decapitation strike. Clancy was mm -hmm. able to have us in a shooting war with Japan if we stay too real and too parallel to too convergent on real life, then it becomes reporting the news. And that's yeah. not what, what we're trying to do. And right. so really we want to be bigger. So when somebody says to me, well, that's not the way Russia would do this. I say, well, you know what? That's the way this Russia does it. <laughs> Move on. Usually I just say delete. <laughs> It's difficult to limit a discussion with Don Bentley and Mark Cameron to only an hour. So please look for the second installment of our interview with the authors of the Tom Clancy Universe.